This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Uh, if you guys have a Bible, you can take it out right now. We're going to uh, dive into the message. Uh, so we're, we're pumped. And before we uh, do that, as you guys are getting your Bibles and turning to Matthew chapter 5, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. Um, and then after we're done praying, then we can get going with the message. Let's just bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here through your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, I ask that as we dive into this really important and significant teaching, Lord, that we would not leave here with more knowledge or information, but we'd leave here with transformation. Lord, we would be different. We'd live differently. Uh, Tuesday at work and Wednesday night at dinner, Lord, our lives would be changed because of your words that have affected us through your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would you open up our hearts, open up our ears. And Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Uh, well, have you guys heard of the Hobby Lobby photo challenge? It's, it's, it's uh, well, oh, careful. Uh, it, it's, it's sweeping the nation with all the teenagers on their social medias, like MySpace and stuff. And so what they're doing is they're going into Hobby Lobbies or, or Michaels, and they go and they try and take the most realistic nature-looking picture in the flower section. Uh, so I wanted to show a few of these to you guys. Um, this is so... <laughs> I love the friends who are standing there holding the flowers. They all look so happy. <laughs> so good. The guys crack me up. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yep, that's happening in his, in his suit. And that was just kind of scary. So it's like someone's staring at your children. Anyways, uh, my friend was telling me about this. I'm like, no way. And he showed me like it's like all these websites and stuff I got. And we were just joking around. And this is literally right as I'm sitting down with some of our friends at Park Hill Church. And we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole Sermon on the Mount has a lot to do with these pictures. Because in these pictures, they, these people are going to great efforts to try and make them appear to be something they're not, to be somewhere they're not. And Jesus is addressing that very same thing with us spiritually on the Sermon on the Mount. You work so hard to appear spiritual. You work so hard to appear righteous. You have tried to do everything you can to try and make it right, but really all you're doing is you're playing pretend really, really well. And he just goes right to the heart of it. And he, on the Sermon on the Mount, which it, for those of you who are new to the Bible, new to Jesus, this is Jesus' longest teaching, collection of, of teachings. Uh, and he's doing it from a mountaintop. And he's teaching to a crowd of people. And his disciples are kind of front and center. And he's doing something really interesting. Because you see, in that day, Every single person was after one thing, and that was this idea of righteousness. Diakonuse is a Greek word for it. And in America, it might be like the American dream or success. Well, in, for ancient Jews and Greco-Roman people, it was 
rightness. It was this idea of I am right with God and with people and I have favor and blessing from God or the gods. And so everyone was chasing this and Plato wrote about it and Aristotle wrote about it and Jesus talked about this idea of righteousness and and what is this flourishing life all about? How do you come about it? And Jesus shows up on the scene and shocks everyone by saying that everyone can have this life. It's for everyone. His kingdom is coming to bring about this life, this righteousness, and it's not withheld from anyone who desires it, which would have been such a massive shock to the religious order of the day. It would have been a massive shock to anyone listening because they really believed in this kind of spiritual caste system. And Jesus says, no, no, this is for everyone. And he, and he just goes in there and he begins to start going right to their system because everyone has a system of righteousness, Everyone has a system of flourishing, what it means to live the good life, if you will. Everyone has their idea. This is what it means to live the good life. And Jesus goes and talks to Jewish people because Matthew, as a Jew, is writing to a Jewish audience. And for them, they believed that the good life, the flourishing life, righteousness happened when you followed all of God's laws. Hands down, that's what it what happened? And so there's a group of people who began to make that their profession. They were called Pharisees. Um, they weren't evil people. They were really, a lot of them, good-hearted people. But they believed if we followed all of God's laws, and by God's laws I'm referring to uh, hundreds of years before the laws that Moses gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. There's 613 of them. Ten of them are kind of the famous ones. But there's sur- many surrounding them. Jesus comes and confronts this uh, this mindset that if you can obey every single thing to the T, check every single box, then you'll experience life, flourishing life, the good life, righteousness. And Jesus goes and he challenges that by saying this really haunting statement in Matthew 5.20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might read that. It might not be underlined in your Bible, but that is Jesus dropping a bomb on the crowd. What do you mean? We have to have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. How is that humanly possible when they are the best of the best of following the laws of God? Well, what, it, what it does is it challenges, it does two things. One is it makes everyone on the same playing field. Right, Because not even the Pharisees are getting it right, but more importantly, what happens is saying righteousness has to come through a different way. There has to be a, a different way to look at how you can be right with God and right with people. And so Jesus, rather than abolishing the law, he didn't say it's bad. He says, I came to fulfill it. And then this is a fancy way of saying, listen, the law that God gave you through Moses was always pointing towards me. I'm the fulfillment of it. Bold statement. But because he's God, (laughs) he can do that. It was always pointing towards me. And so we just had this amazing opening to this this discourse on a hill as he's he's giving this amazing sermon, his manifesto of the kingdom. And then he calls, everyone is blessed. Everyone can be a part of this kingdom. Uh, You are salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Everyone's feeling pretty good about themselves. Like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. Shocking, but really cool. And then he starts to go through these commandments that they held so dear, and he just flips them on their head. Just challenges them radically. 
Um, and we're going to be talking about three of them. He, he goes through six. And we're going to do three tonight, three next week. Uh, but I have to let you know that some of the stuff we're going to be talking about is pretty intense. Uh, if you have small kids and you're like, I don't know if I want them hearing about, we're going to be talking about lust and adultery and divorce and anger and murder. And this, this is Jesus, right? This is not G-rated stuff. This is, he really goes to the, that's totally fine. If at any point you need to feel free to, to slip out, um, you have absolutely that permission to do that. Uh, because I really want to get at what Jesus is trying to say here. I love it. I came across this Jewish rabbi, not a, not a believer, not a Christian, said this, the history of Christianity is the history of the church trying to avoid the Sermon on the Mount. It's that intense. It's that unnerving and how it kind of unearths these things in your heart. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to allow these words of Jesus just to start to move us, change us, challenge us. If you leave here tonight feeling great about just like, I got it all together, then you have not heard the Sermon on the Mount. The point of Jesus is to say, listen, I'm coming for everyone, and everyone's heart needs transformation. As a matter of fact, I just want to recall this quote from Matt Chandler. And it says, and talking about the Sermon on the Mount, it says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus moving us from outward conformity to inward transformation, Right? He's moving us from a picture in Hobby Lobby to a picture in an actual flower field, right? These changes don't pretend anymore. I want your hearts. I don't care about your outward conformity. I want you to be transformed by this kingdom that's coming through me. So if you have your Bible, Matthew 5, 21 through 32, we're just going to dive into anger and lust and divorce and See what Jesus has to say about them. So Matthew 21 through 32 says this. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you know who you are, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's talking, taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on your way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So that's Jesus' take on anger. All right? Ready? Let's keep going. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And this is his last uh, topic on divorce. It says, it has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife 
except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Can okay, we take a deep breath? Man, Jesus like doesn't waste any time just getting like, he's not like preaching like, let's just talk about love. Like he just goes right to like the really intense subjects. And so a couple of things here. And maybe the first, first and most important is this. Our job tonight, humbly, is to try and figure out what is Jesus trying to say? Because if we don't understand what Jesus is trying to get at, we can actually take this and do one of two things. Either A, we shut it out because it's too hard and we don't even touch it. Or B, we feel so crushed and guilty and shameful that we actually just turn into becoming these shells of these people of just like feeling guilt or even prescribing judgment on other people. I mean, this could go way wrong if we don't understand what Jesus is going on here. So that's the first thing we're going to do with these three things. Then secondly, we're going to ask ourselves a very simple question. So what? What do we do with these? How do we move forward from this? And so let's start with anger. And some of you guys are more angry than, than others. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at my own life this week. And to be honest, Friday I realized that there's a lot of anger in my heart uh, built up towards the Chargers. Anyone with me on that? I just, I didn't know it was in there, but it was just, I was watching the draft and, and all of a sudden they're talking about the LA Chargers. And I was like, oh, I just want to throw up. I mean, gosh. So anyways, I didn't think I was that angry of a person until I heard that. I was like, wow, I really carry a lot of resentment towards that team. Um, and so when Jesus shows up, he says, listen, you've heard it said don't murder. I think generally we'd all agree with that in this room. Right? That's a good rule. Like, let's not break that one. But Jesus takes it a, a step or two further by saying, I tell you that the heart behind that law was that you wouldn't be angry. And there's two Greek words for anger here. There's thermos, which is a kind of a quick flare up, right? You stub your toe, someone cuts you off. You just have this burst of anger, right? This comes over you because your will is thwarted, right? Uh, and then there's this other Greek word, but Jesus doesn't use that word. What he's talking about here is the second Greek word is ogotestai, which is this Greek word meaning this ongoing, slow-burning, resentful anger that just resides in your heart. So, I, so let me, we have to say that first because Jesus is not saying all anger is sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus does get angry. And a lot of times, in Jesus' case, anger is actually beautiful because he's angry that there's oppression. He's angry that there has been uh, misuse of power. And he's going right to the heart of it and flipping over tables, literally, because of that anger. So he's, all anger is not bad um, when, it's, when it's actually governed by love. There's such thing as, as just anger. Um, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. It's in the, the present participle, which means this is an ongoing anger. It's not stopping, right? It's kind of, again, it's like I said, that low burning, just simmering kind of inside your heart of just like, oh, those LA charges, I can't stand them. Anyone else? Um, so that's exactly what he's talking uh, about in this moment. He says, in your anger, do not sin is another part of scripture. And he says, some of you go to your brother and you call them raka, right? You, I'm sure you've said that this week, oftentimes, to people, you know, in your, in your cubicle or, you know, your children. Uh, but raka just means simply idiot, 
It's kind of like a, it's like a childish kind of uh, cuss word. It's not nothing too like harmful. It's nothing really scary, but it's just like a moron, like, you know, it's like, so, so dumb. Like, it's kind of like one of those things, raka. And then, they, then he moves on. He says, or it's whoever calls your brother a you fool. And that would have been a Jewish expletive. It would have been something that actually would have been like, ooh, Jesus, you just said that? Like, can you say that when you're preaching? Uh, I'm not, because I'm on podcast. But, uh, so, but Jesus essentially cusses others. Those of you who are cussing out your brother or your sister. And then he says something really haunting. He says, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Whoa. What happened to, like, blessed are the poor Jesus, you know? Like, man, this got really intense. Like, I, just, for, just for being kind of angry or calling someone a fool or raka, I'm, what do you mean I'm in danger of the fire of hell? Well, what Jesus is saying here is really interesting because fire of hell in Greek is referring to a place called Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual place that, that still exists to this day, the southern tip of Jerusalem. It's its lowest point that became the city dump. Um, this is a picture of it. So this is hell. In case you're wondering, it may look different than what you would imagine, but this literally is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you are in danger of the fire of that place. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more green and lush than in Jesus' day. Uh, because what happened in this valley, you can kind of see how the valley goes up like that, is people would take their trash. It was kind of the invention of early um, kind of sewer systems. It all go to this place, and there's a 24-hour-a-day fire burning. So hence, when, we, when you think of, of hell, and, and I don't know if Jesus is really giving a dissertation on the afterlife as much as he's saying, you know that place in the south of Jerusalem, you know Gehenna? When you're angry, when you let it sit, sit into your heart, you're in danger of that becoming your reality. And, I, and, and, and again, in Jewish minds, eternity did not start after you die. Eternity was right now. The afterlife was a continuation right now. So you could either be living in heaven right now and heaven continues, or you could be bringing hell right now and continue into hell. So for Jesus, he's not talking about when you die. He's talking about right now. When you hold on to anger, you are inviting hell into this world. You're inviting this, this never-ending fire to be a reality in your heart, your home, your workplace, your churches, because you're not dealing with it. Um, and then he gives these two examples of, of where anger could show up. The first one he says is, maybe some of you are about to offer your animal, your sacrifice, the most holy point in a Jewish person's life, on the altar. And in that moment, literally as you're about to like spill the blood of the animal on the altar, you remembered, oh my gosh, I have an argument. I have not been reconciled with Joe. Um, I'm going to leave this here. Sorry, priest. I'll be right back. You leave the altar, and then you go and reconcile. You make it right. Then, Jesus, then you come back and you offer your sacrifice. Well, here's what's funny. Jesus is preaching this message in Galilee. You offer offerings in Jerusalem. Galilee is 80 miles. 80 miles. So that would be like you, without cars, traveled from uh, South Los Angeles to San Diego to offer your religious 
sacrificial goat or lamb. You do it once a year, and right as you're about to do it, you're like, oh, man, forgot me and Uncle John, or I, I called him Raka. <laughs> Leave it there and go 80 miles on foot back, make it right, and then come back. This is extreme, and what Jesus is trying to get at, until you see reconciliation as your act of worship, then no other religious act matters. Until you deal with that anger in your heart, I don't want your sacrifices. This, isn't, this is really intense. Like you can imagine the audience being like sweating a little bit, like, whoa, this is a lot. And then he gives a second example. It's like maybe you're on your way to court. He says, deal with it on your way. Don't let anger take you someplace where you could throw yourself into prison. And again, it talks about if you don't deal with that anger, you're inviting hell and judgment upon yourself, not them. Isn't that the lie? The lie is we think the longer we hold on to anger, the more we're punishing them, and all we're doing is punishing ourselves. Jesus is saying, listen, you have to say, great, I'm glad you didn't murder someone. It's a, but the point of that commandment was always about your heart and how angry it is. Uh, j- just to be honest, um, guys, telling myself a little bit. When I was studying for this sermon, I was literally like, "Oh man, this is gonna be one of those sermons where I'm gonna struggle with like anger this week, huh?" <laughs> like, it just happens. Like, oh man. And, and this morning, uh, Augustine, who's almost he's gonna be two this week. He's our son. Has uh, become has started this new practice where he found out how to turn on the bathtub and he goes and turns on the bathtub and he takes an entire brand new roll of toilet paper and starts shoving it down the drain of the bathtub, okay? Maddening, right? Like, why do you do that? Um, And so this morning, I wake up really early, not because I'm holy, but because Augustine woke me up early, so I'm already a little bit on edge. And, um, and then a couple hours later in the morning, you know, we had breakfast, stuff like that. All of a sudden, I hear the water turn on, and I, and I run into the bathroom. And there's Augustine, just turns around, looks at me, has this roll of toilet paper, starts shoving it into the drain. And I'm like, Augustine, guys, I lost it. I lost it on my son, right? I was like, God, I'm like, you can't do that anymore. Like, and he's just like, starts crying. I'm like, that's right. You know, like, <laughs> like I'm 12. <laughs> And he literally goes and cries to Jen, and, and Jen just so sweetly, like, just doesn't even say anything, but she looks at me in this way, just like, what are you preaching on tonight? And I was like, oh, Raka, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I just, I was so humbled, because it was in this moment where I just realized, Jesus, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I, I literally cannot be perfect in this area. And I think it's in those moments where we find ourselves in our sin, literally in the midst of our sin, that Jesus says, I have to be your righteousness. You can't do it. I want you to. I don't want you to ever be angry, but I know you'll fail, which is why the law is fulfilled in me, not your acts. So I got on my knees, and I repented to Jesus for yelling at my two-year-old son. 
and I picked up my son who has no idea what I'm saying and I repented to him. And I invited the Lord's righteousness to be mine because I, I'm not perfect at this. I'm, I still struggle with moments, especially with two-year-olds, of anger. They just know how to get that out of you. But Jesus is saying, I want your heart. Yes, you can preach a sermon on anger. That's not the point. I want your heart. So the second thing Jesus talks about is, is lusts. And he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He quotes the, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. And he says, good. He says, but... It's not the point. It says, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, women, if you've looked at a man lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's a heart thing. You've reduced it to an action with the physical body, but I gave you this commandment to deal with your heart. There's something deeper that's going on here. In 2016, Time Magazine came out with one of their issues, and the front cover of the magazine was a picture just titled Porn. And I remember seeing it in the grocery store, and this week I was studying that, I'm like, I wonder what Time Magazine had to say about lust, about adultery in the heart. This is an excerpt from their article. Because a growing number of young men are convinced that the sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains were virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. The generation was consumed explicit content in quantities and varieties never before possible on devices designed to deliver content swiftly and privately, all at an age where their brains were more plastic, more prone to permanent change than in later in life. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a largely unmonitored decade-long experiment on sexual condition, conditioning. The article goes on to start talking about how um, some of these uh, young men uh, are, enter into marriage and end up having absolutely um, horrible intimate life because of something that was never an act between another person, but it was an act in their heart. And, I'm, and I'm, as I'm reading this article, it's so fascinating, because it happens all the time, where I'm just like, wow, it's so funny how culture and science is literally saying, you know what we just discovered? Is that this is about your heart and your mind, not an act. And Jesus is like, duh, it's exactly what I said 2,000 years ago. Congratulations, you haven't committed adultery. That's not the point. How's your heart? Because if you let it into your heart, you're inviting hell on earth in your own body, in your mind psychologically, in your relationships. You're ravaging it. You're devastating it. And as long as you think you can just check a box that I haven't committed adultery, then you've missed the point. You're missing the, the flourishing life I've wanted for you. When I was preaching for a service, Pastor Mark, who's our sending pastor, texted me an article that he came across this week. And this is what it said. 79% of men, 18 to 30, watch porn at least once a month. And 76% of women. 
Consider these stats from one of the most popular porn sites. By the way, this is one website. Enough porn was watched in 2016 on this one website that all the data would fill 194 million USB sticks. If you put all the USB sticks end to end, they'd wrap all the way around the moon. In 2017 alone, this one site got 28.5 billion visits. That's almost 1,000 visits a second, or 78.1 million a day, way more than the population of the entire United Kingdom. In 2016, 91,980,000,000 videos were watched on this one site. That's 12.5 videos for every person on the planet. Also, more than 4 billion 599 million hours of porn are watched on this site alone. That is equal to 5,246 centuries. This is our world. And I love this article in Time Magazine because these men, these young men, aren't Christians but have experienced so much hell on earth in their lives that they have devoted themselves to ending it. How much more as followers of Jesus? Because of the love he's placed inside of us, because of the transformation in our hearts to live lives that do not foster this. It's interesting Our culture is so interesting. I was reading a sociologist article this week, and he said that every culture determines its values. And once a culture determines its values, they will create ethics around that value. This is what America has done. They've created a value of success, and so we create ethics around it. Like, it's okay to cheat in business. It's okay to get ahead because our value is to succeed, to be number one. We have a value of pleasure, instant gratification. So what do we do? We create an ethic around it to say, it's okay. Everyone has the right to choose. As long as you're, as long as you're not like violating someone, it's fine. But what's so funny is because of our system, we've created ethics that don't align with the ethic of Jesus. And what has happened is we have not invited life. We've invited death into our culture and our nation and most importantly in us. And it includes the church. And what Jesus is trying to say is we have to reimagine this. And if Jesus isn't already pushing buttons, then he moves on and starts talking about divorce. I found out a couple weeks ago that Encinitas has the highest number or highest percentage of divorce in all of San Diego County at 65%. This is our our neighborhood. These are are our neighbors that God has called us to love. And the chances are you are more likely to be talking and having coffee or lunch with someone who's been divorced than not. So what do we do with that? What does Jesus have to say about divorce? What Jesus says here is pretty small. He talks a lot more about it in Matthew 19 if you want to read that. But let me just give you what I believe Jesus is trying to get out when he's talking about divorce. In that day, men had the right to divorce their wives. Wives did not have the right to divorce their husbands which creates some pretty interesting dynamics. Uh, And so Moses had this law, you had to give a certificate of divorce. And so the box they would check is, 
well, I can divorce for whatever reason I want as long as I give a certificate, which kind of let them off the hook. But the reality is, if that woman did not have family, the only way that woman, that divorced woman could make money was to become a prostitute. There are literally writings from rabbis that say that you could divorce your wife if she burnt the toast. Another rabbi writes, you could divorce your wife if you found a more desirable woman. Can you imagine the audience Jesus is talking to where men are allowed to divorce their wife for whatever whim or reason that comes across their mind and women have no such right? And it seems to be that they're acting upon this as they so please. And what is happening, as you can imagine, is this is a severely dysfunctional and oppressive culture for women. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you thought you could give it, you were doing a good thing by divorcing, giving a certificate, but I'm telling that if you give a divorce, you have made her the victim. You're not the victim and you will be liable for judgment. And all the men were like, What? It's incredible, not just in this instance, but throughout the Gospels, how Jesus takes women of that day and elevates their status. And he's doing it here. Is he talking about divorce? Yes, but I believe he's talking about women and oppression at a deeper level. He's saying, listen, stop treating women like this. This was never the heart of God when he gave you this commandment. The the certificate of divorce was so that people would not be trapped in an abusive, adulterous relationship. And you're using it to exploit women for whatever reason you want. Stop it. And Jesus is just not wasting any time to just dealing with this, this heart issue. He says, if you think you can divorce your wife and not have the same judgment that she would have, then you have completely misread it. This is so shocking to their system that when he talks about it in Matthew 19, his followers, his disciples, the 12, you know what they say, their response is? The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. That's their response. It's not like, wow, Jesus, I never thought about divorce like that. Thank you. No, they're like, well, I'm not getting married. Like, this was so ingrained in their culture, and their hearts, they're like, that the men were just like, well, if I can't do that, I don't want to be in that kind of relationship. I'm sure Jesus said, that's just fine. Because <laughs> he cares so much, so much, not just about women, but any person, minority, people group that have been oppressed marginalized by culture, Jesus is passionate about. And he's doing it here through the context of divorce. So what do we do with this? We know Jesus is not just creating more laws for us to follow because he just is, came to say, hey, listen, I'm not trying to give you more laws. You can't follow enough laws to be righteous. So what is he doing here? A really helpful illustration for me is this idea of center set versus bound set. Now, this was introduced to me by my friend Rose a few months back and was brought up to me again this week. And this idea of center set versus bond set is best described as this. So in Australia, shepherds do not use fences for their herds. They use wells. So sheep are not allowed, don't travel very far away from the well because they know they have to come back and drink from it. Shepherds in America and most parts of Europe use fences. And so what happens is sheep know, well, I can go up to the fence and I can graze wherever that fence is. 
And I believe what Jesus is doing right here is he's saying, listen, the law was a bound set system. It created fences and gates and said, you can't go beyond this. And so people started living their lives up to that fence. Well, I'm going to go right here and I'm still right. And Jesus is coming. He says, no, no, I'm creating a center set society where I'm the well. This is not about if you can or can't, do's and don'ts, laws and rules. This is about me. And when you come and I'm the well, I'm the living water, he says in John chapter 4, and you drink from me, you don't want to go and find out what the edge is. You want to keep coming back to me and drinking from me. And when you come and experience the life that I bring, you'll begin to start identifying that everything else is a counterfeit. When you drink from me and you, and you have that temptation to want to be angry, you'll realize, no, 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 I don't need to because Jesus wasn't angry with me when I was an enemy of him. When you have that temptation to go lust after that guy or that girl and you have that temptation to go and want to turn that person, that, Im- that image bearer of God into an object, you say, no, 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 I'm going to go and drink from Jesus because his love has transformed me to view them as brothers and sisters, not as objects. When you're in a marriage or in a situation where you could be oppressive and selfish with that person in that relationship, you go back and say, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus was never oppressive to me, even though he's so much stronger than me. Do you see how that works? Jesus is not trying to create more fences, but a well. He's saying, come and drink from me. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to lust. You don't need to divorce because if you drink from me, I will satisfy those areas where you're wanting justice, where you're wanting pleasure, where you're wanting freedom. I'll give you all those things. I'll give you justice. I'll give you pleasure. I'll give you freedom. But not at the expense of relationships and people being hurt. I love how Romans 8 talks about the law versus what Jesus brought. This is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, that's such a great line, Because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So here we go. As we conclude, let's just ask ourselves these questions Uh, What do we do with anger? What do we do with lust? What do we do with divorce? And the answer, first and foremost, is if you don't know Jesus yet, that's first. If you don't have Jesus at the center of your life, you will just go and try and live out more commands and more laws. You'll try and do right. And it might last you 72 hours. It might even last you a month or two, but it will not last. It has to come from a place of being renewed and transformed by Jesus first. So that's, that's first. If you're here tonight and, and that's you, 
you guys can mark on your connect card, I want to know more about following Jesus. We have a Bible for you in the back. Come talk to one of us. We have to pray with you and walk with you as you learn to know what it's like to follow Jesus. But that's where it begins. And for those of you who are following Jesus, if, if anger is your thing and you just know there's that thing inside of you that you have been burning, that low-grade anger for a long time, I would encourage you to do this. Think about why you're angry. Why, what is causing that anger inside of you? Has someone hurt you? Has someone been unfaithful to you? Has someone slandered your name? Someone thwarted your will? Now think about whatever that cause is and ask yourself this question. Have I ever done that to God? Have I ever been unfaithful to God? Yeah. Have I ever wronged God? Yes. Have I ever gone against his will? Absolutely. All the time, every day. And then here's the question. How did God treat you when you did that to him? We don't have to guess. Psalm 103 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he... For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Listen, there's amazing books and therapists and counselors, and I would encourage you guys to check those out if that's a part of your journey and process. But it begins with the gospel. It begins with Jesus. What has he done for you in the midst of your own angering sin that deserves wrath and deserves judgment? He doesn't give it to you. He poured it out on Jesus. So before you start choking someone out for their sin they've done towards you, think about how Jesus didn't choke you out when you sinned against him. Meditate on the gospel reality because it changes you. Secondly, with, with lust. If this is a pattern, an addiction even in your life, then just like the last thing, the first thing you need to do is you need to run to Jesus. Let him transform your heart, how you view the opposite sex, how you view people as objects rather than gifts, image bearers. And Jesus would say, if you can't get, if, you, if that's not happening, if, if, you're, if that's not changing in your life, he says, deal violently with it, right? I told first service, like some of you guys should get a flip phone again if this is the cause of it. Get that razor out of the closet, you know, Charge it back up. Uh, there's, there's a young man who's in our youth group, and he went from an iPhone, a brand new iPhone, and he got a flip phone. I was talking to him. I'm like, why'd you do that? I was talking to him. He's like, I'm thinking about doing this. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you do that? He's like, well, like the iPhone's so much. Like I can text easier. I can look up stuff, social media. And I just told him, like, so you would rather have convenience more than purity. And he's like, yeah. The next week he went and sold his brand new iPhone, lost money, spent more of his money to buy a stupid plastic flip phone. Pot one of the most popular kids in his high school, walked onto his high school campus, and everyone's like, what did you just do? And he probably, and he told some, probably didn't tell some other people. But for him, this was not a fence that he couldn't go beyond. It was a well that he had drinking from. And Jesus says, I, 
man, I just, I don't want this to be a part of my life. This isn't what, this isn't what Jesus wants for me. And when it comes to divorce, it, this would be my, my encouragement to you really practically. Um, uh, if you're in a marriage relationship and it's just in a really hard season right now, I just want to say you are so welcome here. You don't need to feel ashamed or guilty uh, because the reality is anyone who's been married has had that season or seasons. Um, but before you are exploring the options of quitting and separating, think about how Jesus could use his word, his church, his body, ther- Christian therapist, counseling, what that could mean as part of reconciliation. Um, we have a great relationship with North Coast Calvary Chapel. They have an amazing counseling program. If you're here and that's you, you can just literally write down North Coast Calvary Chapel, Google them. They have a marriage and family page. And if you email them and tell them you're a part of Light Church, um, they can help you find the right class program therapist for you in this season. Um, but I will say this. Jesus did not give this command so that people can stay in oppressive, toxic, abusive relationships. It's not the goal. As a matter of fact, he gave this command because people were in abusive, toxic relationships. So there are there moments for divorce? Yeah, I believe that there are scriptural grounds, absolutely. Um, and I believe that divorce can be approached in love. But I think that when it's done out of oppression, selfishness, then I think that Jesus would say, would you just drink a little bit deeper from me? What do I have for you? And you guys can pray for me as I carry resentment towards the Chargers. It's just, it's just my cross I bear. And, um, but, I, but I would just really um, thank you guys for joining with us. Again, I know this is sometimes not the easiest stuff to talk about, but I believe that if we're willing to let it sink in, let Jesus touch these areas in our lives, it'll only bring the flourishing life, right? It'll only bring the righteousness that he intended for us. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through commandments. It comes through Jesus. Amen? Because Bauer has this pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've reimagined or asked us to reimagine um, what we think about anger and lust and divorce. And Lord, we just confess we're not perfect. I failed at it this morning with my son. And I need your grace. Thank you that you have called me blessed. You've called me your light in my imperfection. But Jesus, I pray that as I drink more and more from who you are, Lord, that I would just continue to look more and more like who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.